Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Awaken the Awesome podcast. On this episode, graciously uh, welcoming uh, Mr. Bernard-Henri Poitvien, CEO and founder of the International Association of Moringa. Um, I wanted to have uh, Mr. Poitvien on the podcast because of his uh, actually long-standing reputation as a very fierce and dedicated entrepreneur. Um, as you'll come soon to realize, uh, he has been, he's had the seed and again the spark of entrepreneurship, something that most entrepreneurs will tell you. Either you have it or you don't. It's not something you're born with, but dedication, drive, passion, uh, risk, uh, learning to take the punches and roll with them, always finding new ideas and never taking no for an answer, uh, whatever type of goals, never settling in into your comfort zone. Uh, these are different type of traits of personalities and character and dedication uh, towards your own personal journey that always resonate with me and can only have me show, uh, tip my hat in admiration and, uh, you know, respect. Uh, Bernard is definitely an individual that which you do want to hear about and it's a special kind of episode uh, where this is going to actually be the first and first time actually that I've ever done a two-parter on this podcast um, because uh, the episode, uh, the recording went for on for quite some time and it's definitely not something that uh, you know I want to section out but also in full transparency with uh, you know this also and always being a work in progress uh, some technical difficulties didn't result in the funniest and uh, particular thing uh, long story short uh, with the recording having ended I realized in the full context of the audio that was uh, recorded afterwards the raw audio did not include my part as in basically a full-on track of only Bernal's side but not mine. So what I did basically, I uh, recorded it with the uh, highlights and adding uh, my own personal commentary here and there. But uh, in no way did I basically section out uh, Bernal's uh, incredible feedback and insight as uh, I want you guys to get uh, the full jewel of uh, what of a gem of an exchange that it was. Uh, so with your appreciation and understanding uh, for this mishap, but uh, of course I'm sure that you will come away from it, both part one and part two being as awesome as I possibly can because there's definitely, definitely uh, some terrific content in here. So let me not extend the intro too long on this one, guys. Again, thanking you for your time, patience, and involvement. Thanking you for the support on this program. So without further ado, my guest, Bernard Poitvien of the International Association of Moringa. Awaken the awesome. Here we go. One of the first things I want to hit up Bernard with, since it was uh, quite a while since he and I had connected, of course we had connected over social media, but we hadn't physically seen each other since high school. So the obvious question to start off the interview was, what have you been up since high school, my man? Oh, man. <laughs> well, the, since high school, man, a lot has happened, obviously. Because we shared so many memories, you could tell that that was quite the nostalgia hit right there. Yeah, definitely. I'm, 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 I'm chill. I'm chilling right now. It's taking me back. I'm like on a plane right now back to uh, 2000, what, 2001? Um, yeah, after high school, man, um, I was supposed to go to agricultural school in Haiti. In full transparency, I have to say agriculture and what I remember from Bernard Poitvien, I did not see that coming. But hey, I'm getting ahead of myself. I was I was praying that that day would not come to fruition. 
And obviously it did not. Thanks God. I, I saw that as a miracle. The, the Damien, Ecole d'Agriculture, got burnt down for, you know, political reason at the time. And I'm like, this is a sign that I'm not supposed to go there. He really sounds devastated. And from there on, I did a lot of uh, local tourism. I was one of probably the first of our era to start with local tourism. I wasn't allowed to travel I was so uh, focused on joining the Navy SEALs with one of you know my best friends and one of your you know good friends too, Louis Gary. He said um, that was that was our plan since you know we were in kindergarten. But when once my mom knew that I took that seriously, she hid my passport. See, that is a bona fide textbook Haitian gangster mom, if I've ever seen one. You know, she hid my passport for seven years. I wasn't allowed to travel, although my little brother and my whole family was traveling. I wasn't allowed to travel. So basically from 97 to 04, I, I didn't travel and I developed uh, a passion for traveling throughout Haiti. And that's how I fell in love with the country. It opened my eyes and it opened um, and it inspired in such a way where I was like, man, you know, like outside of Port-au-Prince, there's so much beauty, so much potential, so much wealth and so much kind people and you know, what whatever that the world doesn't see so since then i think that's what moved me to find a way to connect those dots and um yeah i traveled first my plan was to once my mother you know on the t- on the seventh year she was like you know what it's been seven years you haven't traveled you know you 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 uh you're ready to uh, go to university and so on so let me basically grant you a a two weeks trip and this ladies and gentlemen is where you have to ask yourselves what could go wrong to miami to florida and funny thing is my father and the funny thing is that my father just today i went to see him and he gave me uh he handed out some old letters and like some stuff that i thought that i had lost and throughout those documents that he handed out that i hadn't seen since 04 I saw my round trip ticket that I did not use because um, once I took that flight on Memorial Weekend, I remember I remember that day like it was yesterday. It was the 28th of May, 2004. And this is an example of how defining moments are genuinely welded into our subconscious. I got on the plane and it was Dutch Caribbean. And I'm happy to take a picture of that round trip ticket and, you know, post it somewhere. So my mom bought me a round trip ticket, you know, saying, all right, you'll go shopping. You'll come back to Haiti. We'll find a way to get you in agriculture um, because your your grandparents and your family has, you know, a lot of land that you need to take over. She had already planned my whole future for me. Like, I'm sure we can all relate. You know, she said, right, we raised you and now you owe this to us to take care of the land and you can't lose it. Da, da, da. So the mo- I remember I said, look, I'm going to get on that plane. I'm, first, I'm going to do my luggage. I'm not going to bring a lot of things. I'm just going to bring a carry on because if I bring too much luggage, she'll get an idea that I might stay. So, right. So I brought a small carry on. I got on the plane. When the moment I got on the plane, I was like, man, I'm really on that plane after seven years. And then I was like, okay, I don't think I'm coming back. So um, I got on that plane when I arrived in Miami. And just like that, all it takes is one decision. Right. I knew that the moment I got on the plane. That's when I made the decision. And um, when I got there, I remember um, a good friend, Enzi Chauvibaze and uh, Samuel Saint-Hubert and Guy Wachidou and Okudi picked me up at the airport. The first thing I ordered... (laughs) 
I said, guys, you gotta, you guys gotta take me to McDonald's. You know, wait for it. Went to McDonald's, man. It was a feast. We ordered ten double cheeseburgers. Andy ordered another ten. I ate all ten. That's how like savage. You know, jokes aside. Um, I got there Memorial Weekend. I met with Nassim. You know, rest in peace, Nassim. Nassim Kabir. Um. We met on South Beach. We went to Wet Willies. We had fun and stuff like that. But behind my head, I'm like, man, I'm having fun right now. But things things are about to turn and it might turn for the good. It might turn for the worst. Because I know if I take the moment, my family would know that I take, make that decision. Like I'm cut off, you know, like from my life support. As any hustler and entrepreneur will tell you, always take inventory of your current situation and adjust accordingly. Right. So... I did a little bit of searching, which university I should attend and so on, blah, blah, blah. But mind you, man, seven years not traveling and, you know, not, not knowing anything about the States anymore, or, you know, it's basically a whole, whole new life, you know, having to adapt and all these things, you know, pure pressure, basically. Yeah. So when I made that decision and I, when I, when I came up front and told to my mother, I said, look, mom, after two weeks in Miami, she's like, all right, you're getting ready to, to get back to Haiti and, you know. Uh, I was like, I'm not coming back. And that was when... I'm sure she took it very well. Basically, she said, ah, you want to be an adult? You want to know what making decision is all about? She's like, okay, that's it. No, 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 no support from us. That's it. And I had to basically start my life with $150 in my pocket. One more time for the back. To basically start my life with $150 in my pocket. So when your family cuts you off and you're looking down the long unpredictable hallway that is your life going forward how do you prepare for that how do you arm yourself for that mentally emotionally psychologically even pragmatically let's listen i had um i was i i, I guess all my life i i prepared myself like uh, mentally uh to you know to take that step because uh, even when we were kids i always had you know a, a strong character um, I always stood up for what I believe, um, and I even stood up for a lot of you know my friends, and that's, that got me into a lot of fights or things like that. You know, be, you know, being a little hustler growing up, selling baseball cards or uh, NBA uh, or basketball cards and or comic books and stuff like that. I always find a way, you know, to to try to get things done on my own, um, and I. It, at the age of 17, basically, I even before I made that move to the U.S., I had stopped, like, uh, with you know, getting an allowance from my family. So that really developed my sense of entrepreneurship. I always had, you know, I had a roof. Uh, I, my school was paid. You know, my food was put on the table. But anything else that was outside of that was on my own. So if I had to, to go out and enjoy life or to do whatever... Uh, buy a motorcycle or whatever it was that was outside of that i have to earn it this next segment is my personal experience as a high school student benefiting from bernal's genuine entrepreneurial hustling instinct it involves a haitian delicacy known as pate kodi and hustling the school groundskeeper oh you remember the pate kodi? <laughs> they're, they're like you're making beef patties or like that, that that's that's what the patikori is. If the audience doesn't know, at one point we had two hours lunch break because we started school from seven and school ended up for us at four p.m. But we had a long ass lunch break, so that was two hours. And uh, the principals of the school, Sunday to Sugodea, 
they decided for some reason that the streets weren't safe enough to let us go out and take our lunch breaks. So they, of course, improved their bars just to have the, you know, and they, they've, of course, they would make more money if all the kids would just buy from the bar at school, which obviously was not fair to us because everybody like the pate wunal, that, that patty that wunal from a block away was making. And, you know, a lot of kids, I heard a lot of kids complaining and, you know, things like that stay with me even in my professional career, in my professional career, because I found myself to like, wherever I see there's a problem, that's where I focus. A lot of people go and choose the easy path in life. And I found myself throughout my journey to choose the hard parts or the wherever, wherever there's some type of problematic, that's where I find myself coming with a solution. And that was it. I was like, man, that's not, that's not fair. The principal, he's, he's there. He's making you know, his, his bread. We're not satisfied with, with the lunch at school. So I had to, to find a way. So what, what I did at that time, I basically like arranged with, with, uh, what was his name? Wilfred. <laughs> he, he was, uh, I guess the guardian of the school or whatnot. So I went to him and I said, look, this is this, this is that I'm going to have to like get out of the school without anybody knowing, without the principal knowing, replace the orders. I'm a, I'm a hire like a, a monitor in each class to get the orders in each class. And what we had like maybe what, 10 different classrooms or something, or maybe 12. I, I can't remember. What it was. So it was very well organized to say the least. Um, and then I would collect, I add, I added what I added like 50 cents or a dollar on each order because I was like, Hey guys, I'm taking all the risk. If they catch me, I'm going to get, I, I got to make a cut. I, you know, the risk, I, I have to make my profit for the risk that's being taken. Planning, resource, strategy, risk, return on investment, man, this guy's a hustler. Exactly. So I ended up making, you know, uh, Man, I was making some good money back then. Um, but, you know, it was not even the money that was the, the thing, but it was mainly the, you know, like the service, you know, seeing seeing all the happy faces and everybody just being satisfied to eat their party and everything. Customer satisfaction is primary. Um, as a businessman, you know, you have to learn how to take risk and especially calculated risk. And if you're, if, if the risk is to serve, you know, uh, the community, if it's for the betterment of the com community, then why not? You know, why not? You laugh it off and it's all fun and games just hearing it from a teenager, just, you know, being a young entrepreneur in high school, but you really listen to some key foundations of service and entrepreneurship where the customer comes first and you have to be willing to put yourself out there for the greater good of your customer and your clientele. These are calculated risks, yes, but the return on investment is first and foremost a satisfied customer with a quality product who's willing to talk about you and spread your reputation going forward. These are very early foundations that Belna is teaching us right now. Yes, that's that's definitely my style. But let's not sidetrack. You remember something about $150 in his pocket to restart his life, right? If you're curious, so am I. Sure, sure. Um so I got to Florida. I had $150 left in my pocket. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. Um I was fortunate enough to approach a a, a cousin of mine who was, I, say, I would say, um, dear enough to allow me to sleep in his living room. So I had a carpet to myself. That, that, was, that was back then, <laughs> you know, that, that's what I had. And, you know, the first, the first month was all groovy. You know, everybody's happy to see me. You know, we're among family. 
But then, you know, the bills started to add up and, you know, things started getting great. You know, next thing you know, I'm a, I'm eating a little bit too much in the house and I, I'm not a big eater, but it appeared that way. Um, you know, the electric bills and stuff. So I started feeling really uncomfortable. But, you know, like they say, you know, uh, so like sometimes, you know, got to uh, roll with the punches. But that motivated me more to, you know, get out of that situation that I was. It was really uncomfortable at one point because I felt like I was an inconvenience to, to my cousin and to his little brother. Fortunate enough, his girlfriend, I guess, saw that, you know, and not, not ever that I talked about it with anyone or with her, but she saw that in you know my eyes i guess and she told me hey you know uh, bank of america is hiring right now why don't you go uh, for the for a position there at least to pass the test and that's when you know i got dropped to brickle avenue and went to bank of america there their headquarter and um there were like what 13 of us that went for the job no it was 19 of us that went for the job i got pulled aside i scored what uh on whatever uh, the math test or whatever the quiz that they had, I scored like 18 out of 20. And then on the psych, no, I scored 20 out of 20. And on the psychological test, I scored 18 out of 20. So the guy, the guy pulled me on the side and he was like, Bernard, you got the job on the spot. Um, do you want to talk to your new branch manager? So, so, and I got the job at the Aventura mall, Bank uh, of America, Aventura mall in Miami, North Miami. Got hired and everything, you know, did my two or three week training, whatever it was, and started started there, man. That was my first job, my first ever job. What I can only take from this is the fact that you can genuinely go from sleeping on a relative's carpet to being in a very uncomfortable position of overwhelcoming your stay. And you know what? Don't stay weighed down by the overbearing feeling of feeling sorry for yourself. Just get out there, open yourself to the opportunities and keep moving. I killed it. And what I think what really is the fact that, you know, us coming from, you know, to uh, the equivalent of Ivy League school in Haiti, you know, the, the best. We, you know, you and I, we went both to Serui Gonzag and we both went to Sanditsu, which are the best, like the, these two schools, anybody knows that if someone comes out of that school, you, you're a genius, you know, or you're very well founded. So uh, what what really worked for me at with that one is that I spoke and wrote four languages. So they were like, man, you know, aside from acing the test, but, you know, how can you top that? You know, a, a 20, 21-year-old who's already writing and speaking four languages. So that was a big plus. And these are little things that along my way that I've always had, like, had, to kind of save the day in a way, or and I commend Senri Gonzaga and the two for that too, because you know academic uh, school is important for any young kid who's listening right now. The more you can put on your background, just you know, add to it. It's never it's never too much. High school was a gladiator match of academia. Exactly, man. It, it was savage competition, and I was like, you know what? I'm so tired. I, I that, at that time, that's when I first learned about what the word leverage meant. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to leverage everything out. So I don't want to spend my whole adolescent life studying and studying and studying and not know what's happening with the world. So I decided 
I said, I told, you know, some of my friends, I'm like, look, let's see who can skip the most days and still pass the next grade. And I ended up playing that game all by myself because after the first try that my friend and I, we tried to, you know, skip two, three days a week out of school and everybody kept on feeling. And everybody said, Bernard, you know, you, you can play this game on your own. We're not going to play it. We, we want to, like, study and do our own thing. And I ended up skipping school from seventh grade to 13th grade, like, at least once or twice. This public service announcement brought to you by Do As I Say, Not As I Do. All that time that I was not coming to class or not coming to school or being dropped off at school, because at one point the principal had to call my mother and say, hey, he's not coming to school. So my mother, she made it her, she made it her other job to drop me in school every morning and i would still find a way you know after the first hour in school i would find a way to sneak out but for me i was so infatuated with what was going on on the outside why is haiti in that mess like i could not understand why you know we have some people that are so wealthy some people that you know are you know middle class and then why do we have extreme poverty so all that time, I was going a lot of times in the ghetto. I was, you know, trying to understand, like, what's missing? What's the missing link? Why are you not connected? You know, I would see sometimes, you know, my friend or people in, the, in my uh, social realm, you know, walked in their car, their windows up with AC, while another person on the side of the street is begging for food, hasn't ate for days. And I'm like, why are we not compassionate towards one each other? Because that's what they're teaching us at school to care for one another, be compassionate. That's what it's to be. But we're make we're we're make we're pretending that we don't see the poverty, that we don't see the extreme poverty. We don't see someone that's starving to death. And we're we we you know most most of the people in our, in my social realm they knew that okay my father my mother has this business when they get old. They'll leave the business for me. I'm going to run my business. I just need to mind my business, but I don't know. Need, I, I don't. I don't care about what's happening around me. So I was fed up with that, and that to me, since I at a young age, it developed. So I kept. I, I kept on going on these, you know, these ghettos on the streets and talking to people and understanding, seeing why what they're complaining, what they're asking, and um, when I got into Moringa, that's when I saw this is a perfect bridge to connect, you know, uh, everyone together because everyone deserves help. Everyone deserves a, a good environment and everybody, you know, needs a little bit of money in their pocket to survive. So I find that uh, Moringa is the perfect tool, is the perfect ingredient to, you know, to, to make something happen for everyone to sit on the same table and, you know, enjoy health, enjoy a good environment you know, reforestation, whatnot, and make, you know, make some money because right now, you know, uh, Moringa is, you know, known by a lot of people where when I started and when I founded the company, uh, International Moringa, you know, everyone was like for six, seven years, I was there planting more than 12 million trees around Haiti in every single province and doing seminars and, you know, shedding light, whatnot. And people were like, Bernard, you're crazy. What are you doing? This guy's crazy. He's, he, he's, he, he flipped. He went from, you know, uh, skipping school or, you know, liking to go to nightclubs and, you know, whatever, enjoying life and whatnot to planting trees and going in the province, talking to, you know, farmers and stuff like that. You know, that was completely not what 
Truth be told, and with all honesty and transparency, I have to send out my mail culpa on this one because I definitely was one of those on that long list of people who definitely buying land and I'm educating people on this moringa plant. Like, what is going on? And, you know, here we are years later with, you know, our tails tucked between our legs and have to actually, you know, bow down and actually say, like, kudos to you, man, for sticking to it, sticking to your guns and your values and, you know, your dedication towards your own personal project and labor of love. But dare I say that it wasn't easy? Yes, definitely. The the struggle is part of the process and the struggle is real, my friend. No, I'm serious. I mean, like, when I got, when, when, when I was in banking, you know, I said, I'll stay in banking because when my mother kept on, you know, stressing me to, to do agriculture, I'm like, I'm thinking like, okay, agriculture is good for Haiti, but I don't see myself as an agronomist with boots on and in the mud. That's not how I can help Haiti. And in my head, in my mind, I'm like, you know, Haiti has, Haiti needs two things. Haiti needs management good management and Haiti needs capital like you know entrepreneurs and financing and stuff like that and projects so in my head I'm like you know if I if I go ahead and spend 10 years in a in, in a in a world-class country in a developed in a first world country I could arm myself with enough knowledge and win enough with, with, you know and be pragmatic pragmatic and arm myself with enough knowledge and tools and insight to bring back to Haiti. So that, that was my whole plan. So, um, but what happened, you know, like life, life threw a curveball on the seventh year when the earthquake happened, I was, at the, I was still traveling. I was, I, I was already, you know, promoting Moringa and I had already started planting Moringa in 2007, but I was still traveling because I needed to, you know, uh, broaden and do market studies all around the world to see how we could penetrate these markets, you know, uh, um, find, you know, distributors to create the, the chains where we would, you know, liquidate our stocks and so on, you know, do the legwork basic. But before that, um, I left, you know, I, I was getting, I was getting uh, uh, dogged at a little bit at work at Bank of America. You know, we, we went to, you know, like Ivy League schools in Haiti. So, you know, preppiness was something that came along with the territory. So a lot of my colleagues or they, they saw that, you know, we were, or I representing a Haitian community or whatnot was a little too preppy, was a little bit, you know, like, uh, uh, they would call me pretty boy or whatnot, you know, or uh, being too nice by customer service with the clients was you know on point. Whereas other colleagues, I'll, j- I'll just give you a, a simple ex- example that explain everything. This next one is where basic clashes with exceptional. Take notes. So I remember like the bank, Bank of America would close, would shut, would, would shut their doors at 4 p.m. And there was, a, there was a particular client or a couple of clients. What, what you have to know about this branch was that the whole Aventura Mall was our client. So there was a lot of big transaction. And Aventura is probably the biggest or, you know, top three largest in South Florida. So we had a lot of transactions, a lot of banking transactions, a lot of money that we had to, you know, balance and put in the vaults and so on. So there were were three clients that would come with like tons of cash. They would wait 
like five minutes till 4 p.m. So five minutes till the bank would close, they would come with a ton of cash, with a tons of pennies and coins and quarters, and they would try to make a transaction, you know, to deposit or whatnot. And a lot of the, the my other colleagues would say, hey, when these guys come, don't let them in because they're going to make us stay for another hour. We have to leave work. I was the one to say, hey, they came five minutes before the bank closed. So we have to serve them. And I would always serve them. And along the, uh, along the way, you know, I've had people telling, hey, Bernard, you're, you're going to be the president of the bank, you know, but mind you, my other colleagues were already working at the bank for five, 10 years, and they never got these compliments. Sow the seeds of your work ethic and efficiency early, and your reputation will speak for itself. So it created, it started in this, this jealousy or whatnot. I remember telling them, look, I, I'm, I'm tired of, you know, all this nagging and all this, you know, talking behind my back. And remember this, guys, elevation onto your personal journey towards success will undoubtedly and unavoidably be riddled with separation. I remember, t- you know, that's, that's when I decided to quit and leave the bank. And I did. I, I gave my resignation letter um, a couple of weeks or a month after that. But they were, another thing is, coming from Haiti, I wasn't aware that, you know, the, the, the work policy was, you know, five days of work and two days you know, of, uh, of rest. And they, they, they were dogging me out at the office. They had me working six days a week. I had my supervisor, Alex Costa, and he took advantage of, you know, uh, and, and his, in his mind, I'm Haitian. I don't know the, you know, the, the, the regulations or whatever, the policies. So he took advantage of that. So, um, I, I, when I found out, I was like, man, I could, I could sue the bank for this, but I was like, man, you know, I, I won't do that. They were still, the bank was still good to me. It was you know, unfortunate that someone took advantage of me not knowing, but anyway, uh, that's the brief parenthesis. Um, so I, I resigned at the bank. And that day, it was sometime around April. I remember walking out the bank and seeing the sun. Like I, I saw the sun so bright, like I'd never seen it before. And I'm like, man, I'm free. <laughs> you know, like it was, I, you know, us growing up in Haiti, we never had to work. Everything is handed to us almost, you know, whatnot. You never have responsibilities. And now I had found myself in a situation, you know, starting with $150 and not being able to provide for you know, your own food. So I ended up saying like, I want to spend the next three months because it was summertime. It was getting to be summertime, not to work. I had saved up some money and, you know, I enjoyed life those three months until I saw my bank account left with $500. Then I said, Hey, I was like, Oh boy, man, this, now this is reality that just hit. And I was start. I started looking for jobs. Um, the job that I had found was a security job, which I'm like, man, I came from banker to security. And I said, man, but that, that's, that's the only job that accepted right now. So I'll have to roll with the punches until, but until I found out the hours were conflicting with my school hours, because I, while I was working at the bank, I was still going to, to you know, to school. I was doing, uh, in, at Miami Dade College. Pretty sure the ego took a huge hit on that one. Oh, definitely a huge shot to the ego. Huge. And, and the, you know, the position was for like late hours, graveyard shift. And my classes started at 7 a.m. And I was living, I, I was living like an hour away from, from school. 
So I have to wake up every morning at four or five to head to school to, for the 7 a.m. classes and start work at one or what it was noon or 1 p.m. And if I did the graveyard shift, I wouldn't be able to go to school anymore. And I said, man, if I get caught up and not going to school, next thing you know, you know, I'll be a security supervisor the rest of my life or something. So uh, I ended up not taking a job and uh, to continue with school, um, which I did. I, you know, I, I did not finish college. I had one semester left. Most of the things that was studying in college are things that I, I knew already. And I didn't, f- I, I didn't feel like it was going to lead me anywhere. So I went to professional school. I went to a school of real estate where I studied finance, real estate finance, commercial and residential. We all have our own individual opinions about the importance and the relevance of higher education. And I'm definitely a defender of learning and trying to elevate yourself academically in the best way that you can and learning all that you can with the prevalence of information that's available right now. And I do remember part of the exchange where I did ask uh, Bernard if he thought that his personal uh, foray into higher education, the time spent in college was, in his own opinion, a waste of time or not. Yes, it, it was a waste of time in the sense that like, I knew what I wanted. I knew what like my calling was and I knew what, how I was going to make it happen. And I felt like college was not going to help me do that. Although some classes were useful, like accounting and stuff like that. Of course, you could always have those things, but in the long run, I felt like, you know, finance and real estate was really what I needed to learn. So I went straight for it. And, you know, it, it, it did, a, it, it did a lot of good. Um, I remember what, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I came to Florida when I was 22 and bought my first house for a little over a quarter million dollars. I bought my first house for $346,000 when I was 24. So within two years of being in, I was what, it was December 13, 2006 when I closed on my house. And, and I went, and this is, this is the thing that I strongly believe in. I feel like the way that uh, uh, the college and university is designed is designed to create sheeps and to create good employees, not good entrepreneurs. Because most of the things I've learned, they sure did not teach me in class. I had to be out and learn it in real life. Bernard was also very thoughtful in elaborating his stance as far as not saying that college is useless. Exactly. I'm not discouraging anybody to use the nine to five. If anything, I encourage it because I would not like, uh, 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 I would not advise, you know, uh, people to take the path that I took because Lord knows it was not easy. Not at all. It was, it came with a lot of sweat, a lot of blood, a lot of sacrifices, you know, a, a lot of pulling hairs and not knowing what's going to be tomorrow. So it really came with, um, with a lot of pain. And it with a lot of joy and with a lot of, you know, things to, to learn from. And it, it, it keeps on shaping me till this day. On that note, one of the recurring themes that I hear from all of the entrepreneurs that I've had the privilege to welcome on this program is how your biggest enemy into your own personal progress is the comfort zone. And Bernard was no exception. Let's listen. Yes, I well, I, I never feel comfortable in my comfort zone. That's something that scares the shit out of me. I never like to, to, to get comfortable with anything. I, I think that comfort is something that 
uh, promotes laziness and it destroys creativity. And, you know, and even in a relationship, you know, even in a, fa- uh, in a, how what's the word? Even in any relationship, the moment you find comfort in that relationship, then things starts going down. It's undeniable the very present and very increasing wave of entrepreneurship that's going on with this new generation. I wanted to uh, get Bernard's uh, take on this new wave of uh, creativity and audacity that we're seeing uh, from this generation. If we don't have enough entrepreneurs, how can we make change? You know, obviously, you know, when, when, when you look at the big picture, I think like the system that we were living in, the matrix that we're living in is really unbalanced. I think the system has failed us, no matter if it's a religious system, no matter if it's a political system or financial system, whatever system it is has failed us. We are at war. We're killing each other. You know, some are wealthy. The one percenters are wealthy. The rest is either poor or somewhere in the middle that, you know, so it's really uneven. And the reason why is because the multinationals, the politicians, you know, the governments or whatnot, the people up there are for themselves and they're not for anybody else. But if you don't create entrepreneurs, if we as, you know, civilians, you know, regular people that are genuinely, genuinely good people, if they're, if we're going to wait for a multinational or for a government or for whatever to, to make it better for us, I, I think we're probably going to wait another thousand years or so because that's not happening. At that point, I wasn't sure if it was just wishful thinking that I was hearing or a genuine objective observation. Um, I think people are slowly waking up, but they are waking up. And, um, you know, it has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with the Internet. You know, every information is traveling very fast right now has to do with, uh, you know, with maybe yoga, I would say the yogic community is, is getting bigger and bigger. And that's a community that I personally look up to. And, you know, I uh, am very compassionate towards it. Compassion, dedication, fierce hunger to succeed, and a devotion to his country and his resources well-being. But the question, as dumb as it sounds, still remains. Why moringa? It blows my mind. Um, I remember in high, um, in elementary school, uh, learning in a history class, learning. Okay, Haiti was the pearl of the Caribbean. Haiti was the number one producer of coffee in the world. The number one producer of cacao in the world. The number one producer of sugar in the world. We came from being a first world country to being last in the world. So I said, we, what, what, what just happened here? Like, in a matter of a century or a little over a century, the flip script on us. Did we get smarter? Did we get dumber? Or I mean, like, what, what happened? So I said, if we could have made it once, we can make it again. As tenacious as he is, I'm pretty sure he wasn't kidding. I, I'm completely convinced about that. And I said, if we have one of the most fer- fertile soil in the world, how come there's so much? Poverty, how come there's so much hunger? So when I, when I understood what Moringa was as a tree, as they call it the tree of life, the miracle tree, and when I understood what it was, and at the same time I was connecting, uh, I, I would say, a little bit more on a spiritual level, this is where the word, the name I am emancipated from. 
you know, the International Association of Moringa. It's abbreviated as I am. And I thought, you know, th this tree is really a miracle tree. And I believe that this tree can make a miracle for Haiti and a miracle for the world if people understand what it's about, what Moringa is about. You also realize that Bernard did not shy away from his stern concerns regarding the foods that we choose to keep putting into our bodies. We're being killed slowly but surely throughout the foods that we're eating, throughout the chemicals that are being put in the food, uh, throughout the bees that are dying because the chemicals are being placed in the, as fertilizers in soil or GMOs, stuff like that. And without bees, you cannot have agriculture because the same way us human beings need to have sex to reproduce, the plants, the trees also needs to have sex to reproduce. Their sex is done differently. Their sex is not done physically. It's done through the air. When the bees, you know, pollinize the air, you know, uh, through the air. That's how plants, you know, produce. So I said, all right, Moringa can solve a lot of those issues because it's, it's such a friendly tree to the soil to the plants, to the animals, to the human beings. And guess what? Like plants feeds off the soil, the animals feeds off the plants and soil, the human beings feeds off the soil. So if we're in chain, then we can really like counter chemicals, uh, counter, you know, cancers, uh, diabetes, you know, high blood pressures and stuff like that. Because I remember 20, 25 years, 20 years ago, I don't remember Haitians dying of cancer. I don't remember like there's certain diseases that were not common that are common today and not only in haiti but that's in the that's in the world in general so if if we if we're aware of that then obviously there's a tool that could help us because we're wherever you know uh like they say wherever there's a will there's a way and moringa is that will and way <laughs> so that's, that's where my focus has been since this. I, I just saw the problem. I saw the solution. And I said, I'm going to make this uh, a life mission. I'm going to you know, uh, do it until like, people get it. And in Haiti, it happened that it took me longer because I, I started in 2007. I, I created, I invented the, or pioneered the Moringa industry, the first farm, the first Moringa farm I planted um, in the same uh Location that Wyclef was born, by the way, in La Selle, Quai de Bouquet, the first moringa farm of the country. That's where it's at. And I've always said, man, I, I said, all right, I started in Haiti. I went to president, the the late president Preval. I went to the minister of agriculture. I went and saw everybody. I said, look, this is the future. This is it. This is what's going to help us with a lot of issues that we have. And everybody was like, oh, here goes a story. This guy believes in this and this. And I said, okay, since they don't believe in it. I'll go ahead, I'll duplicate the system, I'll duplicate the, the project in the Dominican Republic. And once it blows up in the Dominican Republic, they'll be like, wow, if the Dominican, our neighbors can do it, we can do it too. And I saw it as a, a chain reaction. I said, the moment it takes off in the DR, it will create a chain reaction within the Caribbean and South America and even Europe because there's a million tourists that come and visit the Dominican Republic. So if they make it part of their culture, obviously it's going to expand, expand. And, you know, it was basically a risk. I went and I, I lived in Dominican Republic for three months with that dream, with that project, with that mindset. And it happened to work. I met with, uh, with two uh, investors there who got convinced they were in the, 
farming and agricultural sector and livestock and so on. Bernard's passion and his refusal to back down on anything even resembling an obstacle is something to behold. But in this part of the exchange is where I ask him my obvious concern, well, not really a concern, but curiosity. I think that in any successful venture, it's not just about you, but about the people you surround yourself with. So my question was obviously, how important is it to surround yourself with the right people? Let's listen. Right. <laughs> I was just getting to that. I basically, I, I prepared my presentation, my PowerPoint presentation. The first person ever to help me on a presentation or on Moringa was um, a sweet person, Christel Sinatus, who's now Christel Cave. You know, uh, I, I remember Christelle uh, studying law there and her now husband, who was then her boyfriend and like a little brother to me, you know, we would hang out every day and so on. And I remember Christelle, I said, I told Christelle, I have to make this presentation to two big investors, but I don't even know how to make a presentation. I've never done this before. So she helped me out with a PowerPoint and so on. And I prepared the presentation. and. I got like basically enlightened and I said, well, you know, this presentation is going to, it's okay because you're going to come with something, but I just need, I need to pitch them two questions. And those questions are really what made Moringa what it is today in the Caribbean and South America. I asked these guys, these guys are the largest uh, farmers in the country. One is called, uh, is the Mejia family. The other is the Reyes family. And, you know, they're big. Uh, the Mejia was like, uh, the grandson of the late President Mejia of the Dominican Republic. So I asked him those two questions. I said, how, how much do you purchase and fertilizer a year in what quantity? And how much do you purchase an animal feed and food supplement for your livestocks? And they were quick to answer, Bernard, we spend, we, we purchase, we spend millions of dollars a year for both of these products. We buy our animal supplements from Brazil and they're based of uh, soy and we buy our fertilizers and from uh, the U.S. Uh, I, I believe it was Fort Myers or Tampa. And I said, what if I can propose to you a natural or organic technology that will cut down your import fees by half, something that you could just grow home and that will give you the same results or even better than the chemicals that you're buying they were they were bernard we're sold where can we get it go big or go home side on steam that was it that was it and i told them we have some moringa trees in haiti but we don't have enough to, to supply you and containers there are some moringa seeds in florida and the u.s but i would not suggest to buy them there because the soil is so filled of chemicals and gmos that you want uh, uh seeds you know or strands of moringa I said, why not get it from India? And luckily they were able to, to purchase containers of Moringa seeds to grow Moringa and develop it in Dominican Republic. But luckily for us, for our market in Haiti, and unfortunately a little bit for them, they bought the second best Moringa species, which is the Moringa stenopitala, versus one species is what we have here in Haiti. 99% of it is Moringa oleifera.
So this concludes part one of our two-part discussion uh, with uh, Mr. Bernard Poitvier, CEO and founder of the International Association of Moringa. Be sure to tune in next week as we publish episode two of uh, this uh, terrific exchange. Uh, hoping you guys enjoyed part one. And be sure, of course, to leave us a comment at awakentheawesome at gmail.com, our general inbox. We always love to hear from you. And definitely uh, do tune in uh, next week as uh, we follow up uh, with Bernard's uh, ongoing you know, endeavors in terms of you know, bringing uh, the International Association of Moringa up and up to speed uh, for the Haitian market. Lots of tips and lots of great insights for a terrific adventure and I'm sure you'll appreciate. So again, with part two being published next week, be sure to tune in. Until next time, I'm Olivier De, your host, and uh, do always stay awesome. All right, guys, have a great day.